Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. I'll just go up sometimes. See me. in your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, sir. The uh, that dreams are made of. Hey everybody, Kirk here. I uh, just want to say before we start the episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter. And Facebook. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear your feedback, and you can find us on any social media by searching Silver Screen Time Machine. We appreciate your feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Hello, and welcome to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk Classic Film Review. Hello, Kirk. Hi, Wendy. How are you today? Oh, dandy. How are you? I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, too. This is, this is a big one. This is a challenge. We've talked about some pretty good movies, but I don't think we've hit anything with the pedigree of the movie we're talking about today. There's so much technical things about this. It's hard for me, myself, to wrap my head around it as a layperson. Researching this, there's been so much written about this yes. movie, so much talked about this movie. It's probably the most written and talked about movie ever. Maybe up there with like The Godfather and a few others, but I think this is the movie that's been talked about the most. So it's a challenge to try to bring something new to the conversation, Yes. but let's give it a shot. Okay, but we should probably tell our folks what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we are getting in our time machine, and we are going back to when, and we are talking about what? We are going back to 1941, and we are talking about Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. The granddaddy of all films, Citizen Kane. One of the things that always jumps out at me, I'm on a lot of online classic film groups and so forth, and one of the things that I always see about this film, the number one comment I see about this film, I have to say, is, overrated overrated I didn't like it I hated this film and I find that a little bit frustrating because I feel like what some people are missing is the greatness of the film I think when a movie has this much hype behind it this much history mm. behind it it's a detriment to the movie yeah and there are a handful of movies like that like Citizen Kane I mentioned The Godfather Wizard of Oz not so much because I think people grow up with that the thing about Citizen Kane is a lot of people come to this as adults as older a little maybe a little more cynical so you hear all these things about greatest movie ever made, greatest right. film ever produced, and you automatically start to question that. Yeah. So I understand why some people might feel that way. And I also think specifically now, contemporary times, it's all about having to take. If you go online and you say, hey, I love Citizen Kane. That's, that's boring. That, yeah, yeah, that's just a, a grain <laughs> of sand on the beach. If you say, oh, you know what? Citizen Kane's kind of lame. It's kind of boring. You get a lot of comments. Yeah. If we want to get people to listen to this episode, title it, 10 Things Wrong with Citizen Kane. Right. I even see professional critics doing things like this where everybody has to find a way to stand out and trying to take down these big time movies these movies with a with a big pedigree that are very well respected I think is kind of a cheap way to do that yeah and honestly I think I do understand I've had people just in general just regular people that I know even people that are fans of classic films say I tried to watch Citizen Kane and I couldn't get through it and I believe I understand what they're talking about it's because the actual story is not done in a normal fashion yeah. it's not what people expect the whole story is told immediately in the beginning yeah. And then it's just fleshed out bit by bit. And a lot of people don't want to sit through and watch the fleshed out version of it. They don't want to sit there and see the flashbacks and the reminiscence of all these different characters. And I think that's where people get lost in Citizen Kane is that they're just trying to watch a movie for entertainment purposes. And they're not looking further. They're not looking for a deeper meaning. They're not looking at the symbolism. They're not looking at the beautiful cinematography. They just want to see a movie and be entertained. And probably Citizen Kane isn't that movie. It is very much, it's a filmmaker's movie and it's like a cinephile's mm. movie. If you know what to look for, yes. you know how special it's it brilliant. is. It's brilliant. And movies like this, another thing that's detrimental to them is that they've been copied so much yeah. that you've probably seen two, three dozen movies before you get to Citizen Kane that have tried to do what Citizen Kane does. So. Right. Citizen Kane looks like the copy. It looks like it's the one that's kind of ripping off these other movies where it's actually originated in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and I want to say Orson Welles 
gets a ton of credit for this film. Yeah. Orson Welles gets all the credit for this film. And I'm not 100% sure that Orson Welles deserves all the credit for the innovation of this film. I'm not saying Orson Welles didn't bring anything to the table because he definitely did. But what makes this film great and what critics talk about is the cinematography. Yes. And that was Greg Toland. That mm-hmm. was not Orson Welles. Orson Welles had never made a movie before. He didn't know any of these techniques that he gets credited for. This was Greg Toland's baby. This was Greg Toland's techniques. He didn't pioneer these techniques no. necessarily, but he perfected them. Yes, exactly. He absolutely perfected them. He did them better than anybody. Yeah. And Greg Toland was not assigned to this film. Greg no. Toland went up and asked Orson Welles, I want to do your film. Yeah, he requested to be in this because he knew Orson Welles' reputation and he knew what this guy was going to bring to the table. He said, hey, I want to work with this guy. I want to play with somebody who's new to the sandbox. Yes, new. I want to work with somebody who is not going to be limited by the constraints of somebody who's been doing it for a long time and knows the rules. And that's what Orson Welles even said. They asked him, what was the secret to your success for this movie? And he said, ignorance. Yeah. Not knowing what I was doing. He said, only when you know something about a craft do you get really timid about it. Basically, he was saying, I didn't know what to do, so I just tried to do everything. I threw it at the wall. And I think him and Tolan worked together really well. Yeah. Orson Welles coming from the theater would set the lights a certain mm-hmm. way yep. to the stage. And Tolan would come by, not say anything, and just kind of adjust them back so for, for what he needed. And it wasn't a contest of, oh, I know better than you. Right. They really worked together. I think that's what's great about it. Tolan was willing to try what Orson Welles wanted to do. Right. He had these ideas in his head. Tolan made him a reality. Orson Welles did that also because he didn't know that Tolan was supposed to set the lighting. He was unaware of that. Again, he had never worked in a film before. He knew nothing about filmmaking. And there were several times when some of the crew would want to try to tell Orson, Greg Tolan's supposed to be doing that. And Tolan told them, no, don't tell him. He didn't want him to be embarrassed. And eventually somebody did tell him and he was like really embarrassed and he apologized. Then Greg Tolan said, no. This is what we're here for. Yeah, do it your way. Greg Tolan was a master of lighting. That is one of the great things about this film the way he does the lighting he would light from the floors he would light from the sides he did a lot of key lighting that's something that went over into film noir a lot of things I think are very interesting about this film and these are the sort of things that if you're looking for these things you're going to really find this film fascinating is the way he did the different light and dark characters walking from light into dark to light into dark yeah why are some characters in a shadow I feel like there's a lot of characters in a shadow and a lot of times those characters are sinister or villainous sure or doing something sinister or villainous and you see their faces totally blacked out and I feel like that's a representation so it's a lot of things like that that if you're not looking for you're not going to catch and you're not going to really understand I think also the use of perspective yeah there are certain scenes where someone will start out in the background and they'll look miniature and then they work their way towards the camera and they make it to the foreground and they take up the whole screen and there's a lot of storytelling elements that where you're seeing and learning things about the character visually and I think that's what's great about this movie is there's so much filmmaking yes the lights and the camera angles and all those things but there's also a real economy to it the one thing that always gets me I come back to this movie every few years every time I watch it I'm surprised by the length that it's only two hours long yeah which is standard feature length but in my head, this movie is two and Longer. a half, three hours yeah. long <laughs> because it has that epic scale to it. Yes. It puts so much into a short amount of time. And I think it's because of the economy of storytelling, the way he visually tells the story and gets so much across that way where he saves that time. So where a lot of people see it as an overabundance of filmmaking, there's a lot of things that are cut. Yes. And just told through a shot or one quick scene where it covers years of time. A good example of that is the breakfast scene. Yes. And this is where your editor comes in. Robert Weiss, the editor, also did a really phenomenal job on this film the editing he did was really cutting edge and interesting the breakfast scene like you say where he tells the story of their entire marriage over just a small montage that takes up what a couple minutes sure and they never well yeah they do speak they speak one line here or there Mm -hmm. but throughout the whole course you understand exactly what has happened yes just by this little montage with this sort of cool flash pan in between that he does and it's really really cool yeah that's really all you get of the relationship between him and his first wife yeah they don't get a lot of screen time i think maybe one or two other big scenes they have but that's really all you get of that relationship and that's all you need and it tells you it tells everything. you everything you need to know and about i love it. at the very end where he's reading the inquirer and yeah. she's reading the chronicle yeah. and it's like she's just saying to hell with you yeah. and <laughs> you it know? just starts out so great because it starts out there at a small table mm-hmm. and they're talking and they're very romantic and you can tell they're in love and the table gets longer mm-hmm. and the conversations get shorter until that end where you're talking about just dead silence they're not even speaking yeah. she's just deliberately reading his rival paper another thing obviously 
obviously with the camera techniques, the big thing that they talk about in this film is the deep focus camera technique. It's a camera technique. Again, it's not pioneered by Greg Tolan. This was even done in an earlier movie. This was done in Hitchcock's Rebecca the year before, sure. but not the way Tolan did it. He got a camera lens that sort of perfected this. He was always working with camera lenses, even till his death. Mm-hmm. Right before his death, he had this new camera lens that he thought was going to be really ingenious and it was going to do all these things. So up to his death, he was always working with the camera lenses, seeing what he could do, seeing what he could change. And he managed to make it so you could have focus on something close, something in the middle, and something in the background, which he, they do a lot of in this film, almost constantly throughout yeah. this film. And it's something that nobody had really perfected. They had done it, but it hadn't been perfected to this degree. It's almost jarring. Going back to the issues people have with this movie, that might be hard for people to watch. When you're used to seeing movies a certain way, to have that much visual information mm-hmm. thrown at you at one time is a lot. Like I said, when you have those three characters in different stages yeah. of depth and they're all doing different things and you're learning different things about each of those characters as it happens, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, and where do you look? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything's in clear focus. Mm-hmm. Are you looking in the front? Are you looking in the middle? Are you looking in the rear? There's all these things going on at once. Another thing I noticed a lot of is shooting through a mirror shooting through the globe in the beginning I really like the edits when they have the picture of the guys from the Chronicle and they're all sitting there and then it immediately goes to them actually sitting there in real life that edit is just so amazing it's so great to think that long I mean it looks like such a modern shot yeah and what it is, Kane is buying his newspaper and he's building it up. His biggest rival is the Chronicle. That's Chronicle. the big paper in town. He's the Inquirer. Yeah, he's the Inquirer. The Chronicle has all the great reporters and journalists. Yes. And they look at that picture and they say, there's a picture of the there's staff. There's a picture at the building yeah, of the Chronicle. Yeah, they're all sitting down and they're looking at this picture. And they say to Charles Kane, you'll never get this. It took the Chronicle 20 years mm-hmm. to build this up. And they zoom in on the picture and they zoom out and everybody gets up. And it's them taking the new picture yes. as Inquirer employees. Yep. Because I think they mentioned that scene that it took him like four or five years to just go and get all those guys. Yeah. And again, that's another example of a great amount of storytelling done in seconds. Yeah a little bit of the plot. So it starts off that there's a young boy playing in the snow. And you see a mother and father in the house. And here's another example. You have this great deep focus. Mm -hmm. He's outside in the snow. You're seeing him through a window. You can see him clearly, but you can see the mother. You have a very close up on the mother's face, the mother and the father. And there's this fellow there. He's a banker, we find out. And we find out she's signing over the boy to the care of this banker. We find out that this boy is going to be extremely rich. She somehow inherited a bunch of money and she's giving the child to to the banker. Walter Parks Thatcher is the banker that she's giving her son to, the son being Charles Foster Kane. And she's signing him over. The father doesn't like it. He's arguing. But they go out to see the boy. He's riding around on his sled in the snow. Sure. And he's playing, everything's happy, and he doesn't realize that his life is about to change in one second flat. So the mother comes out, they tell him he's going, he's upset, he rams the sled into (laughs) into Thatcher, which, you know, he obviously doesn't care for that. And then the next thing you know, you see him at Christmas with the boy giving him another sled, and he's saying, Merry Christmas, and then it cuts, and he says, Happy New Year, and suddenly he's aged 20 years. yeah you've gone 20 years just in that one scene not even seen that one cut yeah you go from merry christmas he's a child happy new year he's an adult that's when you see him first buying the newspaper and taking an interest that's done through letters back and forth between these two you see thatcher age as well through that time and i'd real quick talk about the makeup going back to the very beginning it opens with that newsreel news on the march and i think that seems cliche now but as far as i know this is the first movie to ever use that in a film there's yeah. newsreels existed for real but to bring it in and tell that story and we get the entire story story of Charles Foster Kane in this maybe five minute newsreel. You yeah. get his whole life story and then the movie goes back and goes more in depth. But you see them at all through different ages. Yes. And the makeup is really well done. We're watching now in 4K high def or whatever. It's not as forgiving. But for the time, you see what they did. They made plaster cases for their faces. Mm-hmm. They wore contacts to dull yes. their eyes. Especially for a black and white movie. That's really, really interesting. You can detail. really see that, I think, in Joseph Cotton's old yeah. man section. Mm-hmm. And the makeup artist, the fellow that did the makeup, I don't know if you were going to talk about him. His, his name is Maurice Siderman. Mm-hmm. He was not even 
a union guy. He was a junior. He was apprentice, a junior member of oh, the wow. makeup artist. RKO would let these junior members do this probably because they didn't want to pay the union wages would be my guess. But sure. I don't know for a fact. Apparently, this young guy, Maurice Siderman, is the one that did all the makeup. And they wouldn't give him the screen credit for the makeup because he was just an apprentice. And they said, oh, no, that has to go to an actual union guy. Definitely. They wanted the department head, Mel Burns, and he would not give credit to Maurice Siderman. So Orson Welles said, well, if you're not going to give credit to him, nobody's getting credit. And then he took out an advertisement in the Los Angeles <laughs> newspaper that said, thanks to everyone who gets screen credit for Citizen Kane and thanks to those who don't. All the actors, the crew, the office, the musicians, everybody, and particularly to Maurice Siderman, the best makeup man in the world. <laughs> Very cool. So I thought that was an interesting story about Definitely. that. But I'm glad you brought the news on the march. I did forget about that. That is the beginning. No, the very beginning of the film, and I think it's important to say this too, is that you see a gate with a no trespassing yeah. sign. So that's important to note too. And, and you, it, see behind the it, you see of a his big building. Yeah. And state. there's a light on the window. And then you see the light in the window and it keeps coming closer and closer. And you keep seeing the light in the window, et cetera. The light goes out, the light comes back on. And then the next thing you know, you see a snow globe. You see a person at that point. It's Orson Welles saying Rosebud and the snow globe falls. And then you see that cool visual of looking through the snow globe and you see the nurse come in yeah. looking through the snow globe. So that's actually the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then the news on the March sequence. And the news on the march, actually, there was a thing called the March of Time. It was news documentary and drama series presented in movie theaters by Time. It was an actual real thing. And apparently, Wells copied this almost exactly. He made it look exactly like this real March of Time, the news on the march. Okay. And he was actually a member of actors that presented the radio version. So he knew how it went. Sure. So he was kind of satirizing that and also himself. I love that segment. It's so cool just how they go through. You learn so much about him. Like yes. I said, you get the whole story. You get the whole story you, right off the If you turn bat. the movie off at that point, you know everything you need to know. Except you don't know Rosebud. Yeah, you don't know Rosebud. That's the only you thing know, you don't know. You know his life. And again, maybe that's the point is that you, there's so much more to learn. Another thing in that montage. Yes. They show Orson Welles as, as Charles Kane with Hitler and with yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. And I watched that. And I actually went back and I slow-moed it. And I thought, wow, that is seamless. I thought they edited it together. I thought it was, they took footage because it looks just like Roosevelt. It looks just like Hitler. And there's a couple other figures he's with that are probably historical figures that I recognize. Those are the two that I noticed. But it turns out those were actors. Those oh, were really? impersonators. Because if you look at the credits, there's uncredited actors as Hitler and as Theodore Roosevelt. But it's done so well. And again, this is something else you see in a movie like Forrest Gump where that's kind of the gimmick is you run into all these historical figures and you blend them yes. in with the actors. Again, probably the first movie to do that. I didn't check, but it's probably never been done before. But it looks great. It looks like he's there. with He's on a train with Theodore Roosevelt, and they're waving. They're right next to each other, and it looks so real. And also in that News on the March segment, when I was researching it, said that they actually distressed some of the film to make yeah. it look older to the point that when folks in Italy finally got it, they were very angry because they thought it was an old, <laughs> an old film or an old copy, and it was actually they had deliberately distress some of that film sure. to make it look like it was older. Yeah. yeah, a lot of detail went into that, into this little, it's like a little mini movie. It's like a short yes. film. It is. It's, yeah. And you have this voice, news on yeah. the march, you know, something like that. I believe, I think if I have this information right, that the person that played Jerry Thompson, who was the reporter that... Researches Rosebud. Yeah, the researches Rosebud, Jerry Thompson, that was played by William Allen, and it's supposedly he was the narrator. He voiced the narrator for the news okay. on the march newsreel, supposedly. I heard they also, in that scene that comes right after the newsreel, where they're in the theater, in the, in the screening room watching it, Yeah, it's one of those scenes you're talking about where everybody's lit very darkly. Yes. And you have the light from the projector coming through. And I guess a lot of the actors, including him, a lot of the actors f throughout the film doubled in that scene. Because you couldn't see anybody's You faces. see Joseph Cotton in yeah, there. You yeah. can see, and actually, it says that Greg Tolan made a cameo appearance as an interviewer depicting in the part of the News on the March. Oh, okay. I didn't actually go back and look into that, but I, I read that. I didn't notice. Yeah, I'm not really sure what Greg Tolan looks like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if we go and find it, we can find out. We did the news on the road. So he's now an adult. Mm -hmm. He's become an adult. And he tells the Guardian, this poor, long-suffering Guardian, he's just beside himself, dealing with Charles Foster Kane, Walter Parks Thatcher. He's played by George Kuleris. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important to note that all of these actors 
were not people who had ever been in films before. Most of them were people that Orson Welles knew he worked with in Mercury Theater or he worked with in radio. Sure. It was a big point of pride for Orson Welles that none of these people had acted in films. This was their first film. And at the end credits, you even see the credits are done very differently as well. Yeah. You don't see your credits in the beginning. The credits are all at the end saying introducing these people and he goes through and introduces yeah, them. And they they the each Mercury say a Theater. little line of dialogue yeah. and they're in their character. That's really another cool thing about the film. So Charles Foster Kane, Orson Welles, he has all these whole Holdings. And the only thing he's interested in is the newspaper. Because it would be which, fun. Yeah, he thinks it would be yeah. fun, yeah, to run a newspaper. So he gets this inquirer, and he comes in, and he takes over this inquirer's office, this poor guy that was running yeah. the place. <laughs> they're just kind of running ramp, rampant him, yeah. over him. Yeah, they're going back and forth. This is sort of like controlled chaos that Orson Welles liked to do. This is something he did a lot when radio, where he would overlay dialogue on top of other yeah. dialogue. It looks like a big mess, but it's really all done very precisely. Sure. So he starts running this inquirer, and he starts putting out these absolutely ridiculous not true yeah. <laughs> stories and you get another one of those cool montages with the editing where you see Thatcher he's going through he's reading all these articles and again he's aging yeah. as he's reading the articles and every time he reads the article he looks at this yeah the camera's he's all actually, angry it's actually a really comedic performance yes. like he does like a lot of yes he does a lot of fourth wall breaking where he'll say something and he'll give like a flustered look and mm. yeah there's a lot of comic relief from that character there is and that's the thing people don't note in Citizen Kane is what a sense of humor Orson Welles had oh, and put into this film. Yeah. And I'm sure if we understood the culture and the politics of the day, there's probably so much more, more that we're yeah. missing. Orson Welles was very political yeah. about things. So I'm, that's another thing that as I'm watching the film, I'm thinking to myself, what is Orson Welles trying to tell us? Sure. Because I feel like there's a message mm -hmm. in everything that he's doing, like everything. That's why I feel sometimes like I'm out of my depth. I'm sure he's telling me something, but I can't figure out what it is. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact, the way the story's told, mm -hmm. it's not a linear story. We're getting right. bits and pieces. So we really never get a chance to lock on to where the character is at at any given time. He's a 25-year-old man, and then he's 50. Yeah. In a blink it of an eye. flips all around. Yeah, so we're not really seeing what drives him or motivates him. We're being given ideas, and we're seeing little things, but there's really nothing to fully explain how he went from point A to point B. So I think that really makes it hard to grasp on. Another thing is, I'm sure you're going to bring this up, we can talk about now if you want. Within the screenplay, you had two screenwriters. Yes. Uh, you had Wells working on it, and you had Joseph Mankiewicz working on it. Herman Mankiewicz. I'm sorry, Herman Mankiewicz on it. And they worked separately. They didn't really collaborate. They would both write right. and share what they had and make changes. So you had two kind of different ideas and visions coming into that. And that shows up a little bit, I think, on screen. Right. Everybody thinks Charles Foster Kane represents William Randolph Hearst. Absolutely. Yeah. That is not correct. Not true. Sure. I think Mankiewicz did form the character on William Randolph Hearst, but Orson Welles used a composite. Absolutely. He used a lot of different people to signify Charles Foster Kane. And one of the things that was a bad thing to come out of this film was that when you're not very specific or when you're leaving things up to the interpretation of the viewer, they can get a wrong idea and that can harm somebody else, such as Marion Davies is my example. Sure. Because everybody thought, well, this is William Randolph Hearst, so the second wife must be Marion Davies. And that wasn't the case at all. He based that portion of Charles Foster Kane on a fellow named Harold McCormick. Yeah. He had a first wife who was very well off. She was a Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. And then he had a second wife who was an opera singer that was quite bad. Yeah. And he would try to put her forth. And that's who they were kind of using for that character. But everybody thought it was Marion Davies. As I was researching the movie, I realized how ironic it is where by pushing so hard against this movie, William Randolph Hearst kind of connected himself to it forever. Yeah. I've heard of William Randolph Hearst. I know who he is outside of this. But when I hear that name, the first thing I think of is Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. It's a bunch of different people. It's bits and pieces. There are some things, especially I think from his childhood, that are one for one. But there's a lot of different things. The guy you're talking about, the second wife in Opera House, because no one else will let her right. sing, that is exactly what happened to the gentleman you mentioned, whose name I don't even know, because he was smart and kept his mouth shut. Yeah. And William Randolph Hearst, he didn't die alone. Even though he did have extramarital affairs, he was married when he passed away. He had living children. You know, his life was very different than, yeah. than Charles Kane. 
But when people think about William Randolph Hearst now, they think about that lonely, sad old man because he connected himself so closely to this movie. Yeah, and I mean, they did base Xanadu off of his, yeah. his house. Oh, yeah, there's definitely... So there's, there are some yeah. correlations, but not everything is, oh, this is all William Randolph Hearst. I really think, I'm glad you said the thing about the childhood because I think that's very autobiographical for mm-hmm. Orson Welles. Wouldn't you say the boy's about eight? Yeah, eight, ten, something So like when that, yeah. Orson Welles was eight, his mother died. Okay. And I think that he put that in the film. The boy is taken away from his mother at age eight. I yeah. think it's very significant. Sure. And I think it means something, and I think it's very autobiographical of Orson Welles himself. Like you said, Mankiewicz brought in the Hearst stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of that, because he, he had an axe to grind with He Hearst. hated him. They were friends, and Hearst expelled him from his inner circle, so he had a personal vendetta against him. So that's where all that focus on Hearst comes from. They made the movie about the made Mank, which is a good movie. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. It's pretty good. A lot of it is apocryphal, and it's been proven <laughs> wrong, but it's an interesting movie. And it's really good because if you like Citizen Kane, it borrows a lot of the storytelling elements, a lot of the visual elements. So it's worth checking out if you're a fan of it. But I just think about if Hearst had kind of just backed off you know let it slide a little bit if his name to this day 80 some years later would still be so closely connected with this movie right and honestly he did hurt the film yeah he hurt the film a lot and i also think he prevented the film from getting the oscars it deserved absolutely which as much as i fuss about different academy awards not being given to the proper people there is nothing more egregious than greg tolan not winning the oscar for cinematography in this film that is an absolute travesty. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's put on a clinic here. How Green Is My Valley was beautifully done as well, but you're not pioneering. You're not doing no. innovative techniques. Ah, ah, I can't even this, talk about it. This is why you can't, <laughs> so- get, ups- this is why you can't get upset about the Oscars because it's, it's been that way forever. It's always going to uh, be that way. Be that way. so upsetting. Yeah. Thank goodness he did get an Oscar for Wuthering Heights at least, sure. so he wasn't without an Oscar, but yeah. this film, he 100% deserved the Oscar. Oh, absolutely. And it was very significant because this is the first time and last time it ever happened happened that the cinematographer is given credit on the same page as the director oh, really? in the screen credits first oh. and last time ever huh. that yeah never that was important that was important to wells because we talked about their relationship yeah. and wells knew it wasn't an ego thing where he tried to keep that credit for himself at least not when it came to the cinematography but he didn't try to keep that to himself he recognized everything that Tolan did for him and another thing i thought was interesting i don't know if you noticed as far as shooting we didn't mention they did a lot of low angles they shot a lot of ceilings oh, yeah. which is very unusual you never saw ceilings in films the low angles are unusual there's some points where he even cut a hole in the floor to get as low as humanly possible. Yeah. Like the scene where Charles Foster Kane is talking to Jebediah and they're having an argument and Jebediah wants to go to Chicago. That scene, they were in the floor. Yeah. That's how low they were. And you were. can tell, I mean, they look like giants. Yeah. And that's, was that the point to look like giants? Peter Bogdanovich asked Orson Welles, why did you go so low? And he said, I like the way it looked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks great. But again, there is a lot of informing of character through those angles, through those shots. Yeah. When somebody's far away in the background, there's a reason they're back there. Yeah. When they're in your face, they look 10 feet tall. There's a reason why they look that big. Yeah. There's, there's a method to all that madness. He would shoot Charles Foster Kane and some of the men from lower to higher. So they looked bigger. And the weaker characters like Susan Alexander, he would shoot them down, high yeah. to low. So she looked littler, especially in the scenes where he's talking to her. Yeah. I think of some of the scenes, especially that one scene where she said something. And he's gotten very angry with her. I think she said she wants to quit the opera. And he comes over her and his body casts a shadow over her whole face. Yeah. And it just, I think that just is so significant. The menacing and the power. There's a moment where he has a falling out with Jebediah and he's talking to his wife and he says, yeah, I, I sent him a check for mm-hmm. all this money to get him. And as they're talking, he opens a letter from him. The check is in pieces torn out. Just little things like yes. that, you know, where Beautifully. I think that's something that's missing from storytelling in general is just that economy of show, don't tell. Yeah. That movie does that so perfectly. Right. Things are done in visual, yeah. not necessarily in speech. Yeah. But I will say, I think the acting is phenomenal on everything. And there's a lot of long shots. There's not a lot of cuts in the shots, which is another thing that maybe pushes people off this film, that bothers people. Maybe yeah. they want little breaks and so forth in the cuts. And you have a lot of scenes that are just very long scenes and you just keep going with the scene the whole time. And they were able to do that because a lot of them had come from the stage and a lot of them had come from radio and they were used to doing a rehearsal and then going and doing the performance performance and you don't have cuts and you don't have stops in theater definitely so they had gotten used to doing that and that's kind of how they just 
went on about doing the film and they wouldn't cut a scene until they were ready to move on to something else. Like I said, I think that's hard for some people to watch. I've read somewhere with the average number of seconds is between cuts in a movie that's very, very low. Long takes, unless that's what the movie is selling you. There's certain movies where that's the thing. But in general, people get bored easy nowadays. Yeah. That's just how it is. They want something new. They want to see change. And for something to focus on a certain character or a certain place or a certain thing for that long can be difficult for modern audiences to sit through. There's not a lot of suspense in the film. You've no. already seen what happens. Now yeah. your only suspense is what is Rosebud. And are you invested enough to care to watch the entire thing to say, I really have to find out what Rosebud is? Yeah. I feel like that's another thing where that's what hurts the film with a lot of perhaps modern viewers or viewers that like to have something a little more suspenseful something that they're they're waiting whoa we really want to find out or on the edge of their seat you're not on the edge of their seat to find out what rosebud is now let's be honest are we going to spoil this can no, we spoil this again we are not we okay. are definitely not i won't spoil it because some of you may <laughs> not know what it is but most of you probably do and I think that probably hurts it too. That's why there's no suspense is because 80 years later, I mean, this and probably Darth Vader being Luke Skywalker's <laughs> father are like the two most famous spoilers in, in movies. So I think that probably hurts it too is that you go in, you hear Rosebud and being a 2023 person, you're like, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about. And yeah, I, that, but even if you don't, some people don't want to wade through all this stuff to find it out. That, it's yeah. not, there's not enough of a cliffhanger with it. I think it is an odd thing to latch onto. There's a meeting he has when the reporter meets with Bernstein. And Bernstein tells a story about, because they're trying to figure out what Rosebud is. And the reporter's like, oh, it could be anything. And Bernstein's like, well, you're a young man. You don't know how memories work. And he tells this story of when he was on the Jersey Ferry as a young man, he saw a girl. And it was just for a second, but he said, not a month goes by, I don't think about that girl. And I think that sets up Rosebud perfectly. Because I don't think he was obsessed over Rosebud specifically. But it's the symbolism of it. It's the symbolism of it. When you find yeah, out you the end, you out, understand. Yeah, it's not like, oh, I needed to have that. Yeah. It's just that what that one thing that represents. represents. It could have been anything. It could have been probably mm -hmm. one of a dozen things. But that, in his last moments, is what came up to him. In his I'm so glad you said that story about the girl at the parasol because yeah. you know that that was Orson Welles' favorite scene. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I didn't. And honestly, Everett Sloan, who plays Mr. Bernstein, you know, they didn't put any makeup on Everett Sloan. Oh, really? All they did was color his hair. Oh, wow. He aged himself by his own body movements oh, wow. and so forth. And okay. Posture and the way he held himself. Hmm. So makeup wasn't put on him like it was with the other characters, but he still looked like he aged. Yeah, definitely. He's a great actor, actually, Everett Sloan. He's in a boardroom drama called Patterns, which is a great, not as well-known boardroom drama. Van Heflin's in it, and he does a fantastic job in that film. Would love to talk about that film someday, but I digress. Back to the story. We find out when he drops the snow globe that he said Rosebud. So it's found out that his last word was Rosebud. So now there's this reporter played by William Allen. He, his name is Jerry Thompson, and you never see his face. He's always in a shadow, or his back is turned. You never really see him clearly, and I believe it's because he's supposed to represent the public, Joe Public, somebody trying to find out and pry and find out into yeah, somebody's life. So he's basically the anonymous public. He's not actually a person. I mean, he is a person. He's a character. But yeah. that's, I think, what he's supposed to represent. So what he does is he's given this mission to go find out what Rosebud is. Yes. And so he goes through the entire film going and interviewing people bit by bit. And he goes to all the main characters and he interviews them. Or, for example, in the case of Thatcher, who's deceased, he has to go look up this history that manuscripts in this fancy building and they have one of the most beautiful scenes in oh, the whole film so yeah. with the light rays coming down into that big empty room yeah. where he's sitting and looking in the, the clock into the footsteps oh it's uh, it's beautifully done beautifully yeah. done this is what makes it as a cane a great film people yeah. you have to appreciate what they've done with the light and the cinematography it's phenomenal no but, you're right absolutely and as he's going to each of these places even when he's going to look at the book it starts to go into flashbacks yes from that person's perspective. Mm -hmm. So you get the perspective of that individual, whatever character he's interviewing or whatever he's doing. So yes. you'll get a little segment about that. And, and that's how the film progresses. He interviews everybody and you get the little snippets and you learn about his life through these flashbacks and snippets as told by each of the characters. Yes. And I think that's really interesting because like we said several times now is that you get the whole story at the beginning. Right. It fleshes out. Yeah. You drill in on these certain characters and get the part of his life that they spent with him and get that angle and that aspect. So I think that's really cool. And it, But again, I think that is what makes the story and the character so hard to latch onto is that you never really get his perspective. 
Right. You're always hearing about him from other people. Right. And exactly. that's kind of the point. Even in that newsreel at the beginning, they have a couple of different scenes where there's a person standing up and saying, Charles Foster Kane is a communist. Yeah. And they smash cut to another person saying, Charles Foster Kane is definitely Fa- a fascist. Fascist, yeah. So you just get that idea of no one could ever really get an idea who this guy was. Yeah, who is Charles Foster Kane. Yeah. But I do think one of the things that at least I noticed in the film was that it seems what Charles Foster Kane was looking for is love of something. Absolutely. He snatched away from his mother, so he's lost his mother's love, and he spends his whole life trying to find, the. first of all, it's the love of the public, yes. right? He thinks he can get the love of the public by becoming a politician. Yes. And he thinks he's going to win, and he is going to win, and then he, this whole thing happens where he gets caught in this affair by his his political rival, who you see in darkness almost all the time, showing that this guy is dishonest, he's a villain, and he winds up not winning. He winds up losing by a landslide, and then he felt like he's lost the love of the people. He doesn't have that, so he tries to make it up by getting love from his second wife, because his first wife, as soon as she found out about the affair, she left him. So he's now trying to go through her. He's trying to make her an opera singer. She's not very good, but he's forcing her into this. So he's then trying to get, get her love, which he doesn't succeed in that either. And he's also throughout the course, like maybe trying to get love from his friend. Jebediah seems to be somebody he really respects and admires. But you notice the whole time Jebediah is always making little cracks at him, like sort of criticizing him throughout the film. And it's like no matter who he tries to get love from, he never can get what he's looking for. Yeah, what really stuck out to me this time, I never really thought about it before, but watch it closely. You said at the beginning, his mother signs him over to the bank. He's a ward of the bank. Right. So he's a man who was raised by a a financial institution. An institution. Exactly. And so how is that man going to function in life? Right. So he has that obsessive personality where, as you said, he's looking for love. I think they make that pretty clear. He's looking for, for, for the love of somebody. And he has that obsessive personality where whatever he's doing, he throws himself completely into it. And like you said, it's politics. And, you know, he has loved the people. He's going to get that love that way. The people love him. The people want him. That falls apart. Then he transfers it to his wife. And you get the idea that, yeah, he's doing it for the love of his wife, but also he's going to get the love of the people through his wife by making the people love her. Yeah. They'll love him. And again, that falls apart. And they reject her, too. Exactly, yeah. And then it comes down to just them. And he loses her, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, and he has this idea that he has very high ideals. He wants to think he has these high ideals, and I think it's because he believes that Jebediah does have these high ideals. And I think he's trying to emulate Jebediah. And I think there's something, when he writes that declaration and Jebediah keeps it, and he looks really uncomfortable that Jebediah keeps it, and then when he winds up firing Jebediah and he sends the check back, he sends back back the document. And it's almost like saying, I know you're not this person with these high ideals. You're not fooling me. And it's the one person I feel like he does want to convince is Jebediah. Yeah, because I think Jebediah is, throughout the movie, is the person who's most onto him. Yeah. Who kind of sees through the facade that he's putting on. Yeah. So I think kind of conquering Jebediah is to get him on his side and make him his friend and make him love him and make him kind of one of the followers that he had because he Jebediah isn't a, isn't a no. follower he's surrounded no. by these sycophants but Jebediah yeah, is definitely Bernstein's, not one of them he's kind of the yes guy yeah. everything he does yes yes he's perfect and honestly I think my favorite sequence I mean I really like Joseph Cotton's sequence Joseph Cotton plays Jebediah we yeah. should say I really like his sequence when he's the old man and he keeps asking for the cigars yeah. <laughs> he's so cute he, play, he does such a great job of playing an old man and again changing his voice we had to remember a lot of these people came from radio that's why they're so good at changing their voice his Absolutely. voice sounds different it sounds more like an old man's voice he does a great job all the characters do a great job but I think my favorite sequence is the Susan Alexander sequence because there is so much beautiful cinematography in that particular sequence her story gets told twice in a way because her story is told also in Jebediah's sequence as a matter of fact there's one point when they're talking about when she's becoming the opera singer and you see her getting ready for the opera and it's all frantic and she's stressed and you see it when Jebediah's I don't know if you notice this but when Jebediah is is telling the story it's shown as you're looking at her right yeah. so you're like you're in the audience looking at her so not really from her perspective when the story gets told in her segment the perspective is from behind her okay yeah so a totally different perspective so it's sure. almost like you see her perspective and as a matter of fact what's interesting is when you see it from behind her it looks like a completely empty yeah arena. I didn't notice that. yeah 
It's really interesting. And those scenes when they're in Xanadu, when they're in that big, huge room, yeah. and the puzzle. The puzzle's another one of those montages where sure. a period of time going by, her doing the puzzle, these editing through the puzzle, and that big fireplace, and when he sits in the chair so far away from her. And they did a lot with the sound there where they would distort the sound to make it sound like they were far away, even when they were not yeah. far away. He did a lot of work with sound because he came from radio and he knew a lot about sound. Sure. So that is something that Orson Welles, I think, did a lot of himself is the sound yeah and the staging and again he did help with the screenplay how much he did of the actual screenplay and how much Herman Mankiewicz that's never been really determined but he had a lot to do with the staging the story directing the characters obviously so it's not like we can't say oh Citizen Kane is all Greg Tolan there's yeah. a lot of Orson Welles in oh it. absolutely yeah I mean I think he's all through it I think like I said even with Tolan I think that was a collaboration where Tolan was kind of guiding his hand but it was his ideas. And that's what Tolan wanted. But his stamp is all over this movie. Yeah. I think this is very much Orson Welles' movie, for better or worse. This is the movie he wanted to make. Yeah, and another thing I thought was interesting. When Susan Alexander is leaving him, there's yeah. such a beautiful scene, and I know there has to be some level of symbolism behind this that I haven't figured out yet, about her walking down that passageway through all those doors. Yeah. And light, shadow, light, shadow, and she goes through, through all these doors, and I think there's something symbolic about that. But then, Later on, he'll walk out and he'll walk past another passageway that's like a mirror that just, as he's walking past, you see all these Charles Foster Canes down yeah. the passage. And it, there seems to be, I'm not sure what he's trying to say there, but seems to me that there's something. It's almost like she's gone and there's just all him. It's just, or yeah, something. He's, he's alone. Yeah. That's, and it's yeah. all those different versions of himself. Right, maybe, you know, he, he's, yeah. He, he's all these different versions of that care of, of himself, of that character, and he's alone with that now. Yeah, and but then there's this there's this part right when she's leaving where for some reason out of the blue for no reason at all there's like a cockatoo and it squawks real close to the camera. Yeah, it has an empty eye. Yeah, and Peter Bogdanovich asked Orson Welles like what was up with that cockatoo and he said so it was getting late in the film. I thought people might be falling asleep. Yeah. So I wanted to wake them up. <laughs> so I just threw this cockatoo and he said it wasn't supposed to not have an eye. He yeah. said that was just an error yeah. in the thing. But he said he thought that would sort of like perk everybody yeah, up. Yeah, it, it makes no sense within, <laughs> the, within the scene. Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting. And yeah, it definitely wakes you up. It's the sort of thing that Orson Welles... So even back then, see, he was aware of people... Maybe not, not collecting yet. with it 100%. Yeah, we struggle with it now. Not me, per se, but a lot of people struggle with it now. Imagine in 1941 when they were very used to a certain kind of film. They had yeah. never seen anything in this kind of perspective before. And they couldn't even see the film. People couldn't even see this film upon release because William Randolph Hearst blocked it from yeah. being in theaters. It was not in any first-run theaters. It was only in independent theaters. Something I've never looked into concerning people's take on this. When did film fandom start? When did the idea of being a cinephile start? Like, were there people in the 40s who were just like, I can't wait to see this great filmmaker make this great film? Or were they just like, here's a nickel, it's Saturday afternoon, I'm going to go watch it. In the 40s, I suspect it was more that way. I think people became more knowledgeable about film and more interested in film as the 40s developed and you started to get things like more film noirs, which a lot of film noirs used techniques that were used in Citizen sure. Kane. I mean, they took a lot of the lighting techniques. I don't want to say that Citizen Kane, again, they did not pioneer all these no. techniques. So there's German Expressionism had a yeah. lot of this sort of stuff. He, he studied a lot of German movies, a lot of uh, Stagecoach. Stagecoach, 40 times. He yeah, he, it. he re watched and rewatched Stagecoach, and, and that's Tolan actually used that. There were certain times when Wells would say, "Well, I want to do it this way," and Tolan would say, "Well, on Stagecoach, Ford did it that way, yeah, the way he wanted to do it," and Wells would be like, "Okay, let's do that." So he knew where his inspiration came from. But yeah, he definitely drew from a lot of film. He taught himself movies. Somebody made I forget who made it for him, but they made him basically a book mm -hmm. of filmmaking 101. Yeah, and he took that. And the principle's there, and he applied that to the films he watched. But he went down, and he watched Murnau, and he watched Griffith, and he watched Ford, and he watched these greats. And he took from those, and you see that. You see a lot of expressionism, yeah. a lot of stuff from silent films in this. But like you said at the beginning, this movie kind of perfects it. Yeah. It also gives it more, a lot more meaning than it had before. Yeah, so another reason this film is considered one of the greatest films ever, if not the greatest film ever, is how it influenced films upcoming in the 40s and 50s. Again, very influential in film noir. But again, audiences in 1941 couldn't see this film unless they went to an independent theater. Critics were not allowed to write about this film. William Randolph Hearst owned so many newspapers that he blocked everybody. If you were on his newspaper, you couldn't write anything.
anything about this film. It did escape some of that, like in New York, for example. It was very popular in New York. And when people did see it, they liked it. It was very critically acclaimed. But the problem was that I think it really hurt them at the Oscars. And I also read that block voting by screen extras deprived Citizen Kane of Best Picture and Best Actor. And similar prejudices were likely to have been responsible for the film receiving no technical awards. Why would they have voted against it? What was their motivation? Maybe, I don't know if it was because William Randolph Hearst or because, for example, some of, I don't know that they used a lot of union people in this film. That could be it. And there's also, I mean, people coming from the stage, maybe that was a threat. There was also talk about there was a level of jealousy between other directors and so forth because... I don't think we've mentioned Orson Welles was given this carte blanche contract, which was completely unheard of. Oh, yeah. Basically, and this is another reason I think Greg Tolan approached him, is that he had no interference from the studio. He was to make everything himself. The studio couldn't do anything. It was his film from start to finish. And he had never even directed a film before. And he was given this contract. And And they said there was a lot of professional jealousy around about that. And we should probably mention that we said he came from Mercury, but what really made him a hot commodity was War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, the radio. The radio show. And does anybody know what War of the Worlds is anymore? Is that like a thing? Does anybody know? I mean, besides the Tom Cruise movie, like, do people still like, you ask kids in high school, do they know about War of the Worlds? I don't know. They used to read War of the Worlds in high school. I don't know if they've gotten rid of that or not. But anyway, it was a big, for those of you who don't know, it was a sci-fi radio broadcast that he broadcast as an actual news event. It was a book first. Yeah, it was a book. Yeah, yeah, but he translated that into, and the way he presented it was he made it that this is actually happening. And he sent people to panic. It became a big deal. People were in a panic. It was a big phenomenon. So that's really when Hollywood... And he had gotten some attention through his plays, of course, but that radio program was what really got Hollywood's attention of him. Yeah, he was in big demand after that. I think we have not mentioned, and we should mention, Bernard Herrmann. Oh, absolutely. Also, a lot of these people, even the technical people, not Greg Tolan, but some of the other technical people did work with Orson Welles at Mercury as well. They said Bernard Herrmann did some work with him. Bernard Herrmann did the music on this. He actually created the opera songs. These are not real opera songs. He made them up to sound. Unlike real opera songs, all the songs that Susan Alexander sings in the film. And they said they just made those outside of her range on purpose. Yes. To make it sound bad when yeah. she's saying And it. I will say, do you not think that the fellow, <laughs> the fellow that's trying to instruct her in the music oh, is not the guy. funniest guy? Yeah. <laughs> so funny. And that's why I'm saying people don't realize there's levels of humor in this oh, film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of my, the best jokes to me, one of the best gags in the movie is when they first get married. And she's like, oh, he's going to make me an opera star. And he says, if I can't get on stage anywhere else, he'll build me an opera house. And he's like, ah, that's not going to be necessary. And as he's finishing (laughs) that sentence, it fades into the headline, (laughs) Kane buys opera house. Yes. Just so many great yeah, gags like that. Yeah, so funny. He, the Orson Welles had a great sense of humor, they yeah. said. But Bernard Herrmann, back to him, he actually wound up in his later career being very associated with Alfred Hitchcock. He yes. did a lot of Alfred Hitchcock scores, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, which, yeah. you know, one of the biggest ones, I think, that Absolutely. you think of. So, But started out basically with Orson Welles. And the, the music in this is, you don't get a lot of score in this. No. But when there is score, it's very interesting. Yeah, again, I'll use the term again, it's used economically. Mm-hmm. And I think it really fits the mood. Like, I think there's a lot of the scenes we were talking about with Thatcher, the comedy scenes, there's that upbeat, almost like a comedy score. And then you have the dun, dun, duns. You hear a lot in there that you'll get from his more iconic scores later on. Yeah, so the film nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, Best Writing, Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Art Direction, Best Sound Recording, Best Film Editing, and Best Music. Only one that won is the Best Writing, Original Screenplay, and Robert Weiss with the film editing. That's crazy to me. Uh, Editing. I just can't believe it, what he did in that film. And Robert Weiss wound up being a director. He directed The Sound of Music. Yeah. So he wound up being a great director. He did many films. But what he did in that film with the editing, those montages, it's so phenomenal for him yeah, not to have won. the montages and all those different wipes and things like that. Yeah. Just all the different transitions. The dissolves. The Another dissolves. thing about the dissolves, Orson Welles did the dissolves really differently than usual. And if you really pay attention, you'll see it. As he's fading out on the character, he'll keep the spotlight on the person. And the spotlight will be coming in on another person. So there's two people still in the scene. Yeah. And then the other person will fade out to black. It was a very unusual way to do dissolves. But it worked really interestingly in this particular film. 
but you can't get mad about the Oscars. I can. De- I can. No. I can't get a, mad. <laughs> you're never going to be happy. I mean, I'll go. I'll go on a rant for ten <laughs> minutes about this past year's Oscars if you want. I mean, you can complain about every year. You know, they're never going to get it right. But it's such a shame that if there was political reasons that people oh, yeah. deliberately didn't let these very talented and worthy crew and technical people. I mean, if you don't want to give Orson Welles best picture, or yeah. if you don't want to give Orson Welles best actor, if you don't want to give him best director, take it out on Orson Welles if you want to, if that's what you're trying to do. But why take it out on Greg Tolan, Robert Wise, sure. people that really, they're crew people. They didn't deserve that. And out of everybody, I think Wells is the one who really didn't recover. He never really, I mean, he made some great movies, but he never really reached these heights again. Yeah, and I think we should, unless you have anything else to say, I think we should probably do our star ratings on this, which should be interesting. But I want to say before this, Citizen Kane, not my favorite Orson Welles movie. What is? The Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, okay. Wow. And unfortunately, a film that was butchered by RKO. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know that much about it. I've seen it. He, he left to do something else, and they edited it themselves. Oh, I have heard that. Destroyed yeah. it. When he left, destroyed yeah, he left it. And it's still a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's still great even. Yeah, I love The Magnificent Ambersons. I also love Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil is good. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was he always was, a great yeah, filmmaker. Yeah, he did he a lot of great work. Absolutely. But I think just he something about the heights he hit. I mean, you make the greatest movie of all time on your first try. It's going to be hard to hit that again. But I think the reaction to this movie effect, definitely affected him. Okay, so what is your what is your star rating? I'll go five on this. Are you? I'll give it the five it deserves. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's not my personal favorite, but especially rewatching again this time for this and paying close attention and seeing all the work that's going on from the cinematography, the lighting, to the writing, mm-hmm. the acting, everything. I mean, it just comes together. I think the reputation's earned. I can't give it a five because I don't find it perfect on every aspect. I do feel like the story is a little laggy in some point. So I can't give it a five. I think it deserves a five for cinematography. It has many of the things that I really love in films. I'm very big on the cinematography, but I will give it a four and a half. Okay. Which is the highest rating I've given it. We're so boring. We're so basic. I have a film that I think is the greatest film ever, and it's not Citizen Kane. Yeah, but we're still giving it good ratings. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's a great film and for anybody who has watched this film and feels like they can't get through it this is my suggestion and you can ignore me or listen to me if you'd like watch the film with Peter Bogdanovich's commentary I've never done that you will learn a lot and it makes you really appreciate the film and you see a film in the whole new light so even if you don't appreciate the film or still don't really aren't really interested in the film it will make you understand why it's not overrated I'm definitely going to check that out yeah it's amazing to listen to him it's very interesting yeah definitely I mean he was like his disciple. And also he gives you little tidbits of Orson Welles because sure. he's a great friend of Orson Welles. Yeah, definitely. So. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Anyhow, check out Citizen Kane, 1941. Again, if you've had trouble with it in the past, watch it with a commentary. I think you'll really learn something new and interesting about it more than we can tell you because we're not directors. So Citizen Kane, check it out. And we'll see you next time on Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk's classic film review. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Silver Screen Time Machine. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Intro music composed by Heidi Engel. Outro music composed by Maximus Monk. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick and Kirk Kolkowski. Recorded at PCTV Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.